Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 31st. Israel is stepping up their war against Hamas. We get the latest on the conflict and details on the role Canada is playing with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Have you seen the video circulating online of the Las Vegas Sphere? The gadget guy, Mike Yanni, was there last weekend to see you too, and he shares his experience, which he's described as walking into the future. And finally, do you believe in ghosts or have you ever been to an authentic haunted house? Just in time for Halloween, we catch up with Mark Leslie, writer, speaker, and podcaster, who shares some stories of his experiences exploring the spookiest places in Canada. Over the weekend, Israel announced it had entered what they're calling a second stage of its war against Hamas. Joining us to discuss the latest on this and news from the capital is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, What is the mission, uh, bring it local to this conflict happening across the globe, what is the mission of the Canadian Special Operations Forces in Israel? So they're essentially there for for two main things that I'm aware of. Number one is protecting the embassy and dealing with any potential uh, embassy evacuation. Keep in mind that non-essential staff uh, were ordered to leave the embassy quite a while ago, along with family members of of staff in the embassy. But the essential staff have remained. If there has to be a sudden embassy evacuation, um, like there was, for example, in Afghanistan, it's the special forces who come in to to help with that. Uh, And they obviously provide protection as well. If if things were suddenly to erupt and become very, very violent uh, around Tel Aviv, where our embassy is, it would be the special forces who, who get people out. They would also help coordinate evacuations on the ground, potentially for other Canadian citizens. The other thing they're doing there is liaising with the IDF, and that sounds like a very amorphous word, and it kind of is, because we don't know um, exactly what they're doing there, but they have a very close relationship uh, with the Israeli special forces, uh, as they do with the American special forces or the British special forces as well. Um, These are forces that they train with and interact with regularly. They'll be talking to them about the hostages, Um, and I don't want to confuse that with people thinking that Canadian special forces are going to go in and rescue Canadian hostages or be part of these raids. Um, But they will offer expertise. They will talk to them about what's going on. They may be able to offer particular information that could help them to, for example, identify who some of these hostages are. Uh, The RCMP does this kind of stuff too when when Canadians are are kidnapped to provide that sort of information. Um, So they're not there in any sort of a combat capacity. They're there in a protective capacity um, and and, uh, as well to potentially advise uh, on some of that hostage-related stuff, but very different than kinetic. And and interesting note, uh, well, JTF2 is our our national mission force, is what it's called, which means they deal with the most dangerous, the most secretive, the most difficult tasks, uh, including counterterrorism and hostage rescue. They've never actually carried out a hostage rescue. And that's uh, not because the folks in uniform haven't wanted to, but they've never been in a position to, or when they were, they were not able to actually get the political sign-off to do so. Mercedes, another part of your conversation, which I find horrifyingly fascinating, is the tunnels, the the tunnels that are under Gaza and the role that tunnel warfare is playing in this conflict. I mean, how do you fight with that when, you know, it's under hospitals, it's under people's homes? It's it's a very, very difficult situation because, you know, you can imagine in Calgary, if there was tunnels underneath um, suburban neighborhoods, if there was um, rockets that were lodged between homes, if there were military headquarters that were in buildings downtown, um, the 
it is impossible to strike without there being collateral damage. It's just a question of how much of that collateral damage and how many civilian casualties there's, there's going to be and, and how do you minimize that and still take out the targets. It's very, very difficult. It's very different than fighting in places like Afghanistan. What it is similar to is if, if folks remember um, the way the fighting took place in Mosul in Iraq for the Americans. Mm. Very brutal, very bloody, um, very difficult. And, and we spoke to uh, retired Major General Dennis Thompson. He's the former commander of the Canadian Special Forces. He also was the observer mission commander, commander in Sinai, which is significant because Gaza is right there. Uh, he knows it very well. Uh, he said, um, to your point about the tunnels, that they would deploy, for example, drones and robots and dogs with GoPros into the tunnels to be able to see them. Um, but you can imagine the nightmare of trying to fight in a reinforced underground tunnel that's concrete um, you don't know the tunnel layout because you don't have a map and there could be hostages in that tunnel as well um, so really really difficult fighting and he said they're basically going to have to go uh, building by building block by block surround it with armor so no one can get in or out and then clear it and then somehow you can prevent people from coming in behind you as soon as you leave so he expects this to be um, a, a, an operation with very significant casualties and it will take a long time Mercedes, again, this conflict is starting at the beginning of the month, October 7th, I believe. And it seems like over the past couple of weeks, we've been waiting for that second stage for the shoe to drop as far as what the ground war would look like from the Israeli troops. And they are stepping up their attack. But it seems to me, and, and from what we're hearing and seeing, and obviously you're closer to the situation, that it seems much more strategic and tactical and not on massive hundreds of thousands like we did see, for example, in the uh, Russia-Ukraine, uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine initially uh, 20 months ago. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, their ground attack and, and maybe a different approach that they're taking or from what we thought they might be doing? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, when they heard there was 380,000 reservists mobilized uh, onto the border, thought that this was going to kind of look like a, a first or second world war operation where there is massive armor and bombardment and everyone moves in sync across the border. That doesn't work very well in an area where you have large numbers of civilians because you will kill so many people doing that. Um, you also put your own forces at tremendous risk if you're Israel trying to do that. So instead, what they seem to be doing is uh, this sort of at first it was raids and incursions, and now those incursions are going in and staying in. But they are small, strategic. They, they may be doing, to, according to the military sources I'm talking to, sort of a grid system. So you imagine overlaying a grid. That's how they're clearing, and, and they're looking and saying, okay, this grid on this date, we have intelligence that we believe so-and-so is there, whether it's a hostage or a Hamas leader, and then there's this many civilians. And so you decide who's going to go take that. But it's not all at once because it would just be, um, ex extremely messy, it would be very non-precise, and it would be extremely deadly for the civilians there who already uh, are, are suffering really significant death tolls. So I, I think you're going to continue to see sort of this very precise uh, movement. One senior source I talked to who's very close to the Israelis told me it's going to kind of ebb and flow and the media and the public are going to think they're backing off or suddenly getting aggressive but this is all actually related to very specific markers they have that they're looking at when they decide how heavily to go in when, where, and for how long. Um, so I think it's different than a lot of people thought it was going to look like but partially by taking as long as they have to go in um, and, and, and carrying out all these airstrikes and depriving Gaza of essentials, uh, they've had time to really think about how they're going to conduct this operation. But even that said, you know, I spoke to the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, um, and he says, you know, this is, this is going to be a very long and a very difficult war. It's 
there's no way around that. Mm. Mercedes, before we let you go, let's bring you closer to home and talk a little bit about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's carbon tax policy, shifting it slightly. What are we facing right now? And, and uh, does this thing just go away altogether or will that stay? Because, you know, the Prime Minister taking the carbon tax off home heating oil for two years, for example. Uh, I believe Saskatchewan now, the, the Premier is saying, well, we're just not even going to pay it anymore. We're not doing it. We're not taking the money off anymore because our people are suffering. Where are we with this thing? Yeah, I mean, I think the Prime Minister has has opened the door on this in a way that's going to be very difficult for him. Uh, The argument for the carbon tax Liberals always made is that it changes people's behaviour so it's necessary, even though it's painful, and that the rebate they were providing was enough to offset it. Well, if that's the case, why would you take it off somewhere? And they have taken it off somewhere. So they've completely shot their own credibility on this. And, And add on top of that, that they've done this in a way that's regionally based. So most people who use heating oil are in Atlantic Canada. Um, and there are, you know, they, they have done a rural, re, uh, you know, rural rebate as well, which will, will help to some degree for farmers and such. But you can imagine if you're a farmer in Saskatchewan or Alberta who has no choice but to use uh, a lot of fossil fuels in order to do your job on your farm, you're looking at this and thinking, well, I'm not getting a break on the natural gas heating my home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's created a lot of anger. And, and making it worse is that then his uh, minister of, you know, rural affairs came out and basically said, well, if Western Canada elected more liberal MPs, maybe their voice would be heard in the way that Atlantic Canada was. Uh, ooh, I might might be true in the cold, cold, hard world of politics, but if you're going to make the argument that you care about the environment, you mm-hmm. care about people, and that's what this is all about, it's pretty hard to justify it just being to one region. So I think they've opened the door for major problems on this. And, and uh, you know, if, if this is all about principle and necessary and the rebate is enough to offset it, then this decision just doesn't make any sense politically. And the fact that it's targeted to Atlantic Canada, where they've undergone a drastic reduction in the pools, um, just sort of adds to the cynicism about the motivation here, mm-hmm. because people across Canada are, are suffering. A very busy time uh, for you. Thanks for bringing us the details of uh, the West Block and all you've been up to. Thanks, Mercedes. Thank you. That is uh, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. They go together like Jekyll and Hyde. Though which is Jekyll and which is Hyde, I don't know. More like Ben and Jerry. Mornings with Sue and Andy on 107.3 FM. QR Calgary. Tech Tuesday and being Halloween. Gadget guy Mike Yachty would normally fill us in on all the high-tech decorating he's done at his home. He goes all out, you know. Despite the fact he's been using lasers and foggers in his display this year, we're not talking about that this time out. Instead... We have to hear about his recent trip to the Sphere in Las Vegas, where he just saw a group called U2. I'm hearing good things about this group (laughs) performing. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning, and you're right. I could talk for hours about my laser swamp that I created this year, my laser (laughs) vortex. However, we've got something even bigger to talk about, like literally bigger. I had the opportunity in uh, about June of this year to, to be in Vegas, and I drove around the corner just kind of off the Strip, and I saw this monstrosity that looked like the Death Star. It wasn't lit up, wasn't open. It's called the Sphere. So how would you describe it uh, in your uh, tech ways? Yeah, you know what? you got to think of it as a giant planetarium. You know, 17,500 seats under this giant dome that is completely screen on the inside. This is the world's largest, highest resolution screen, 160,000 square feet. And it's 16K resolution. That's like four times the resolution of the average TV set in in your home. And, And I'm telling you guys, the picture is so crisp, 
you can't distinguish what's real and what's fake. And I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who might be going to the show. But from the moment you sit down, you are going to be asking yourself, what am I, what am I seeing? Is this real? Is this legit? Or is this just, you know, a, a projection? But you know what? Even the moment you guys walk into the sphere, you guys, I've got to say, you feel like a 10-year-old walking to the science center for the first time. They've got that spaceship, that space-type music playing. They've got the glowing blue LEDs, and you feel like you're walking into a spaceship. And then you go into the sphere itself, and you feel like an ant because it's so big. It's 360 feet, uh, 366 feet tall. The seating is steep. Think about, like, dome press-level seating. Mm-hmm. It's like that, no railings. And full disclosure, my wife Shauna, she'll probably get mad I'm gonna say this, but she actually got nauseous sitting for the concert waiting to start. She had to leave, take gravel before coming back really? in. Really? Because it's thought that and immersive tip, and that steep? It is, and pro tip, gravel works. If you get motion sickness and get nauseous, Take gravel before you go. Really? Okay. Let's. So that's the the sphere itself, which sounds awesome. What about the concert? How was that? I think the only words that can describe it is it is really mind blowing. You are seeing visuals coming at you from all angles, and these visuals, by the way, they were created by Industrial Light and Magic. So we're talking about the same company that George Lucas founded for special effects for Star Wars. So you know kind of what you're getting into here. And there were times when you felt like you were falling. There were times when you felt like the ceiling was coming down on you and it was going to crush you. It's it's like anything. It's unlike anything you've ever experienced before. And then it all kind of came to a crashing halt. Why? Yeah, what happened? It stopped. Yeah, it stopped halfway through. So there was an awkward discussion on stage with Bono, and a technical person came on and mentioned that there were issues about a console. And, of course, we could only hear half the conversation through mm. Bono's mic. Oh. And Bono says, well, I want to, I, can I not keep playing? So he killed some time by chatting with the crowd, and they went on to play about five or six songs, completely no visuals, just black screen. So you can imagine the energy level in the sphere went from like an 11 mm. out of 10 to three. It's like you go from a hard rock concert to an acoustic set and people were going to the washroom. They were getting another $18 beer. They were talking, <laughs> they were walking out. So we thought the sphere malfunctions. So, but after about five or six songs, all of a sudden it came back to life. The energy level picked up and you two finished off the set with, you know, five or six more songs of super high energy. We later learned that through some of the shows and the shows changed, by the way, slightly, they turn off the screens to focus a little bit more on the yeah. music. Appreciate it. We also, though, heard that the technical person went on stage because they were having technical issues with the audio. There was reverb. Um, the, the mic was a little bit muddled at times. So that was the issue. It wasn't really the screens. They were having audio issues, but Bono wanted to continue on with the show. I was going to ask you that because normally the music's enough. So you go there. Does yeah, it take yeah. away from the music? He answered that one. But interesting, I remember about a decade ago, Eric Church came to Calgary to the Dome. Lots of snow. His trucks didn't make it. He still did the show, kind of an acoustic thing, right? He could adapt. But what happens when a show like this at the Sphere relies on all that tech and it fails? What if it happens more than a couple of times? So I'm not a super U2 fan. I really enjoy their music. But I can tell you, in a venue like the Sphere, without the visuals, it it took the magic out of the performance, which is horrible to say because they are super talented. We can't deny that, right? But this raises a huge conversation because we ran into a couple outside the Sphere as we were walking out, and they looked over at, at Sean and I and said, you know, we're really confused. We don't know what we just paid for. Did we pay to see you too, or did we pay to see the Sphere? 
Because I think the, mm, yeah, the, yeah. Best, the best way to describe this is like you just went to a Cirque du Soleil show and you two did the background music. Were you looking at the show? We, I was looking everywhere. I you know, would look behind me. I'd look to the side because visuals are coming around. And I would glance at you two every once in a while. <laughs> but you got to remember, the stage is small and you are far away from them. So they're kind of like ants. Their, their images are project, projected on the screen. But you just didn't know where to look. It's fascinating because I've seen pictures of it I, and some video of a friend that was there as well. And like the band is so tiny if you're up high yeah. that it is almost irrelevant, isn't it? It's so true. And we were only about halfway up and U2 was very small. But of course, that venue is so big that everything feels you know tiny inside. I should point out something else, though. The chairs, they do have haptic feedback. They, they rumble and vibrate and they have scent that you know goes into the air to kind of bring in a new a new effect and there's environmental impacts like hot and cold those are not turned on for the concert so we didn't experience okay. any of that which is kind of disappointing you have to go to their like imax style show that they put on i think it's called postcards from earth mm. um but that alone just to point this out that tickets for that is 179 dollars us mm. starting and that's only like 45 minutes to an hour. Just just put that out there. We're tight for time, Mike, but uh, the big question, was it worth it? Would you go again? Different band, maybe. Uh, you know what? I, I think it was. It was amazing. Would I pay $1,700 like some people did? Um, no. Wow. But is a one-of-a-kind of experience, and I do think this is the future of concerts. I think this is where it's going, and if they can only just melt together the digital effects with maybe some more stuff on stage, mm, yeah. I think they've nailed it, and I think this is truly something special. It's, it's amazing to see, cool. but watch. If you're going to go watch the prices, because they are yeah. just insane. Of course they are. It's the newest, latest. Thank you so much uh, for letting us know about it, Mike. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's Mike Yanni, the Gadget Guy. You can find him on socials at Gadget Guy Mike. On YouTube, search Gadget Guy Mike Yanni for some great content. It's the most frightening day of the year, but at least Sue and Andy aren't that scary. Mornings with Sue and Andy on 107.3 FM QR Calgary. <laughs> Just how haunted is Canada? Do you have any spooky stories or experiences of a haunting? Well, joining us to chat about Canadian ghost stories and the spookiest parts of our country is Mark Leslie, writer, speaker, and podcaster. Hi, Mark. Good morning to you. <laughs> Good morning, Sue. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background, your interest in Halloween and the supernatural, because you've written books on haunted places across the country, so obviously it piques your interest. Oh, yeah, for sure. Ever since I was a kid, you know, cowering under the covers, afraid of the monster in my closet, the one under my bed, etc. I mean, I was terrified of the dark all the time. And of course, I grew up to be doing researching and writing, you know, fictional tales, but also writing true ghost story tales, many of them, you know, set right here in Canada. It's interesting to me, Mark, the career paths that people choose. You mentioned that this was a passion of yours when you were young. Uh, give us and paint us a picture when you were telling mom and dad, maybe some of your siblings or, you know, classmates that this is what you're going to be doing. And now you're doing it and fairly successfully, I might add. Did some people say, come Thank on, you. come on, Mark, get a real job? Oh, honest, honestly, that was that was the thing. My mom said, oh, if you want to be a writer, you better get a real job so you can actually make some money. And, I mean, it took a long time to get to that point. But yeah, it was it was just always I wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to entertain people. And, and writing was always the way that I love to do that. So break it down for us. Just how haunted is Canada? Do we have a history of really good ghost stories and hauntings here? 
Oh, we do across the country. And I mean, we think we had a prime minister who used to do seances and communicate with the dead. I mean, the, the, think about this. And, and, and it is actually the uh, going on a ghost walk in Ottawa about, about 20 years ago that actually turned my love of ghostly tales into a love of history because you can't tell a good ghost story without digging into the history. And so ghosts actually helped me appreciate more of Canadian history, which I'd never found you know, that interesting, apart from learning, you know, about a prime minister and, and some of the seances and, and just so many fantastical things in every community across Canada. There's always that weird house that the uh, the kids, you know, on Halloween, they, they avoid walking by across the street just to not be in front of that house. There are tales from across the country that people just love to share and, and, and get, you know, spine tingly about. It's, it's interesting because I think a lot of the time when we think about haunted, you know, uh, buildings, houses, graveyards. We think about, for example, Salem, Massachusetts, which was, you know, founded over 400 years ago. And and I think as a Canadian, you might think of some of those old buildings in Toronto or Montreal in through Quebec, maybe the Maritimes. But, you know, you move out west, we're fairly new. Uh, but are you saying that you don't need, you know, a, a hundreds of years old property or house to find hauntings? No, no, no. I mean, you could be haunted from something relatively recent. I mean, Calgary alone, when I, when I was there, I'm doing research on a forthcoming book on haunted uh, bars and breweries. And the and, uh, Rosen Crown uh, closed earlier this year. Mm. Uh, amazing hauntings there. You have the, the Hose and Hound. You have the Cat and Fiddle. These are all restaurants. And then, of course, uh, the Rouge uh, restaurant as well. And, and at every visit to the locations, uh, the staff and the owners are just so willing to talk about and share. Even if it's, you know, not even 100 years old, there are still some creepy tales. Have you been able to sort of dig deep? Do you find enough information when you go looking? Is it sort of a, you know, you go to the library and maybe dig into the old parts of the archives to try and find out these stories? Oh, 100%. I think the librarians are my best friends. Uh, the archivists, the the local interest folks, the ones who curate from local interest. When I'm working on a book, I love to visit the local libraries from uh, an area and just say, okay, I'm looking for ghostly tales, historic, whatever you have. And when you get the right librarian, I just have hours of fun where they, they take the archives out. They give me uh, copies of old uh, photocopies or original clips from newspapers and, and you know, digging into the, the microfiche as well. It is just an absolutely fascinating thing. Because, and people love to talk about scary things. People love to. When I do book signings, people like to approach me afterwards. They're usually a little hesitant, but then they say, oh, I've got a story to tell you about something yeah. that happened to me. And of course... As a writer, I whip out the pen and go, can I, can I write this down? Can I use this? 